0: Well, this morning, we are going to continue our time in First Peter, and I begin by pleading you to remember that the recipients of grace are those who find themselves inside the fences of grace we discussed last week. This morning's words of hope and peace are only for those who find themselves living under the authority of God's Word, identifying with Christ separating themselves from worldliness and going in the same direction as God. If you are trying to live um, under your own authority and you are seeking to identify with the culture and you are ignoring godliness and you are seeking your own ends, then this morning's message will leave you with little hope. But as we consider these things and we see what God's grace gives us, for the rest of us, it should leave us with encouragement. It should be a blessing as we do these things. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be expanding and digging deeper into the grace of God. Our, our view of grace tends to be very minimal. It tends to be very weak and it is my understanding that if we understood grace better we would worship better if we understood all that we had been given in Christ more deeply then our worship would be deeper so this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9 and i would like to preface this before we jump into this this passage, there's enough here to meditate on for the rest of your life. There's just so much rich goodness here that it pains me to have to try to do it in one sermon, but I want us to see the big picture. And as we begin this, I would like you to remember a time in your life. Remember a time in your life when it seemed like the trials that you were in would never end. Maybe for some of you, that's today. It feels like the trials that you are in will will never end. That you're going to have to struggle with them um, forever. As you consider those things, what is it that gets you through to the end? What is it that gets you to complete or to keep going, to keep keep moving forward and keep pressing forward? Let me share uh, an example of that with my own life. Seminary was a blessing. It, it was just, I mean, it's like drinking God's Word from a fire hydrant. I mean, just so much goodness, you know, uh, uh, being thrown at you. But while we were in seminary, um, I worked at UPS for about 32 hours a week, and I, I was a grader for three classes at a time, and I was also a pastor of a small little church out in rural Kentucky, and uh, where where tobacco was what was raised, not not hay, and uh, and. And it was a busy time of life. During that time, we had three ki- or two kids, and I can't even remember how many kids I had. Uh, we, we, had we had two children, and um, my wife and I laugh about this, but we had to put a, literally a 24-hour schedule of myself on the fridge so that we knew where I was supposed to be. Notice I said we knew, because I wasn't sure sometimes where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing every hour. It seemed like it was never going to end. Like I was never going to make it to the finish line. But the thing that kept calling me forward, the thing that kept pressing me forward was the calling that I had on my life. And I longed for the day that that I would I would one day be able to pastor full time and, and I would be able to dedicate all of my life to those things. And so while it was a joy, it was also a great deal of of trial, a great deal of struggle sleeping four hours a night. And I know some of you can Can resonate with that and 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 trying to be a good father and be a a good husband and be a good student and be a good employee and be a good pastor it was overwhelming for some of you you have worse struggles than that in your life you have ailments you have you have uh, health issues you have family turmoil you have all kinds of things in your life and those things can prevent you from worshiping as you ought peter understood his readers were suffering And so he wants to give them something to hold on to. Now, for most of us, when we're suffering, we want to just endure, right? We just want to make it through. Just hold on until the the storm passes by, right? But Peter is not comfortable enough with them doing that. He calls them to praise God in the midst of their suffering. It's not enough for them to hold on. He wants them to be able to glorify him there. So, this morning, as we look at this text, I want us to understand the riches of future grace. And in understanding them, we will not fear though the heat of trials come our way. Not only will we not fear, but we will worship God greater in the midst of suffering because we truly see how rich the soil is. Of God's grace so with that in mind if you have your Bibles hopefully you're there by now we're gonna look at first Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9 this is God's word for us this morning blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable Of your souls. Now, this is enough to light any person's heart on fire. So, hopefully by the time we get to the end of this, we will be so overwhelmed by God's grace that we too will be lit on fire. He begins in this passage by the promise of future grace. In verses 3-5, through five, he begins with the, the promise of future grace. The promise of future grace should produce in us greater worship. The promise of future grace should produce in us greater worship. Notice how he begins this section. After admitting that they are suffering, that they are exiles in their own place, after admitting that, he calls them to begin with this doxology, this this praise, this glorifying of God. In the the Greek text here, verses 3 through 12 is all one sentence. Now talk about a run-on, right? Right? Paul's able to do that. The rest of you can't do that. Okay. He, he's just running on. It's one sentence of exaltation, of exclamation about how great God is. He, he gives him this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing, this, this, this blessing in verse 3 is this, this praise, this, this giving of honor due to God for what who he is and what he's done. This this praise is what should come out of our lives even in the midst of this. He's exemplifying this, this praise. Now, I want us to be careful here to not think of praise only in song. In today's world, oftentimes when we say worship or praise, we limit that to what we do on Sunday mornings up here. And while that is definitely a part of praise and worship, that is not all of praise and worship. The blessing that he ascribes to God, this praise that he ascribes to God, is something that he wants to infiltrate all of their life. Everything they do, that there might be praise and blessing coming forth from them. So he says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he doesn't do, he doesn't leave blessing and praise as vague. So many people today think it's okay to take a secular song that talks about love and sing that to Jesus. The best of what we have to say about our culture's idea of love still doesn't even come close to our understanding of love of God. The best of what we could say about our relationship between even husbands and wives, which God ordained to exemplify His love, doesn't come close to proclaiming the excellencies of God. This is not some vague worship. This is very specific. He said, blessed be who? A person, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the person of Jesus. Blessed be the person of the Godhead. When we come together to praise this morning, this is not a vague um, praise. This is not something um, that is uh, ununderstandable. It's not something that we can't wrap our minds around. No, this is this is praising something we do understand. Worship is deeply rooted in understanding truth. So what is it that what is the context for this worship? What, what is it that causes him to worship in this way? you look in your Bible, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, now, the key clause in this section is he has caused us to be born again. What is it that causes us to worship God? It's our new birth that he's given us. It's the new birth that he's given us. And how has he given it to us? According to his great mercy. Not because I've earned it, not because I've deserved it, but in spite of who I am, God has been gracious enough to bless me with new birth in Jesus. He has caused us to be born again. Now, some of you, when you see that, you may be thinking, "What, what exactly does that mean? Others of you know exactly what that means because when you came to Jesus, you came kicking and screaming. You wanted to fight it tooth and nail until one day you realized that you couldn't do it without him, that you couldn't make it through life alone. This passage is very clear that when we come to Jesus, all of us, it is by God's cause that he is the divine initiator in in coming to Jesus and being born again. And because of that, There's nothing in ourselves that's praiseworthy, but everything in God that's praiseworthy. Let me say that again. Some of you look like you're tired here. There's nothing in us that's praiseworthy, but everything in God is praiseworthy. We we have more than enough to worship with just just that. Just understanding that he has caused us to be born again. But... Jesus didn't just come and save us from our sin. He didn't just come and save us from our sin and give us his righteousness. But notice how Peter adds on to this phrase. He says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We sang about it this morning, right? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. This is what he's given us. He's not given us a dead hope. He's not given us a statue to worship. He's, give, he's not given us someone who came and died in our place. But he's given us someone that has died, and because he is risen, we can rest in the fact that we, this is not our home. Because he has risen from the dead, we can rest in the fact that God and his power can save us too. That we will one day rise with Christ. This is is not something that we need to get over. This is something that needs to penetrate our hard and calloused hearts and cause us to worship Him more deeply. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not just a living hope, but to an inheritance. Now, Now, you out there, who is it that gets an inheritance? Who is it that gets an inheritance? Children, right? Children are what gets the inheritance. But wait a minute. You and I, by nature, are not children of God. It is only when God transforms our heart that when we are caused to be born again, not only do we have birth, but we have the inheritance of a son. For you and I, we have an inheritance in God that is imperishable. Undefiled and unfading, how does that compare to everything else in your life? How does that compare to the things that you long for on Monday morning? Those things which will fade away, those things that will become meaningless. Now don't get me wrong, I, I like hot rods as much as the next guy, so so let me let me. My first car was a sixty six Mustang and I still long for the day when I can have one again. Okay, so so I, I get that. But I, I could long my whole life and work towards that for my whole life. And when I get that thing, do you know what's gonna happen? It's gonna rust. It's gonna break down. It's not gonna be as valuable as it once was. It's gonna diminish and fade. And ultimately, even if it didn't do any of those things, when I reach death's door, it's not coming with me. So everything, the best of things in this life, don't even compare to this inheritance that we've been given as his children. And notice where this is kept. Kept in heaven for you. Heaven, out of reach from all thieves, out of reach from everything that could destroy it. It's kept in heaven for you. He's caused us to be born again. So what is this? What, what is the, the, the outcome of all this? What is the direction that this is all going towards? So we understand the worship, and we understand the context of that worship. It's all these things that we've been given in Christ. But what, what is the outcome of that? It's, it's kept in heaven for you, you who are by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is your inheritance kept, but you're kept. Let me say that again. Not only is your inheritance kept, but if you are in Christ, you are kept in Christ by God. He is keeping an inheritance for me and me for my inheritance. So no matter how much I want to be the prodigal son, my inheritance is not going to go away. God is keeping us for our inheritance and it is resting secure in his power. The power of God. Now that's a promise. I can make promises to my children all day long. But sometimes I can't keep them. Not because I don't try, but because in my power, I can't do anything about it. But here we have a promise from the creator of the universe. We have a promise from the one who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving who's merciful in justice. And he has made a promise to his children that we are being guarded for the day when we will receive our inheritance. That's something that you and I can rest in. Th- this is something that you and I can handle. The difference of this is between celebrating an unsure thing versus a secure thing. Right now, I could begin celebrating the Cardinals winning the World Series. I mean, they got a good, strong young team. You know, they've had a, some mess ups, but they, they, they could do it. I could begin celebrating that. But that celebrating is always going to be tainted by the next loss, it's always going to be tainted by the injury. It's always going to be tainted by the things that are coming up. And it's always going to be tainted by the nagging fact that I don't know that. But what happens after, after they win the World Series? Then we can go crazy. Hopefully not crazy. But then we can, go, we, we can, we can celebrate. We, we, can, we can rejoice with them because they have won. Now, for you and I, this is the thing. Our inheritance has already been purchased for us. It's a guarantee. Why is it a guarantee? Because it's kept in the hands of God. You and I can begin celebrating today because it's a sure thing. Kept by the only person that can not fail his promise. We can worship better because we have a better promise that's you and i this morning but notice this the worship of your heart is determined where your treasure is matthew says do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal but lay up for your tre- yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also what are you treasuring what are you treasuring I can tell you right now, you're treasuring the things that you celebrate. You're treasuring the things that you can't help from keeping coming off your lips. And unless those things are found in Christ, they will fade away, they will be stolen. You can celebrate in your gifts all day, but you know what? There's somebody out there that's better than you. You can celebrate in your gifts all day, but eventually you won't be, have those same gifts. We need to celebrate and put our hearts and and our treasure in God. The promise of future grace produces greater worship, and this greater worship is practiced much differently. If we have a promise of something that is secure, then when trials come, we won't worry. We won't get angry. We won't give up. The practice of future grace causes us to do something different. And that's why in these next verses, he goes on to discuss the practice of future grace. The practice of future grace produces greater worship. Notice what he says. In this, you rejoice. What's he referring to? He's referring to three through five. He's referring to this blessing, to this promise that we've been given. In this promise, we rejoice. Though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in truth. We rejoice in truth. The verb used here, it's actually used twice in our passage in verse 6 and verse 8, for rejoicing, one commentator says this, he says, it denotes an intense joy to exalt or to be overjoyed, and it implies an outward expression of that joy, a jubilant and thankful exaltation. It's an intense joy that implies an expression of that joy. So this rejoicing is not something that's merely done in our heart, but something that starts in our heart and works its way out into our lives. In this, we rejoice. How is it worked out in our lives? Well, he continues here. Here's the context for how this works itself out in our lives. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. I want to point something out here. Peter doesn't ignore the, re- the reality of trials being grievous. He doesn't ignore the hard part of trials. Too many times as believers, we want to shrug off struggles. So when somebody comes to us with a struggle, we want to say, well when it when it's when it's over your head or it's under God's feet that's not that's not weighty that's not genuine that's not that's not that while that may be true that the worst of what I can or the best of what I can handle is still doesn't compare to God it doesn't it doesn't acknowledge the fact that trials are hard He's not saying that it's wrong to grieve when hard times come. What is he saying here? What is the context of this rejoicing? While it understands grief, it also puts grief in its place. Grief is momentary, though now for a little while. Now, that's not a promise that we won't struggle for the rest of this life. What that is is an acknowledgement that the rest of this life doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory, as Paul says. This light and momentary affliction doesn't compare to the eternal weight of glory. The things that you're going through are real and genuine, but know this, they don't compare to the promise of future grace. Though now for a little while, if necessary... The idea contained here is that believers experience suffering as God wills and not as some kind of fate or karma. Believers experience suffering as God wills. And we'll look at that more explicitly in 1 Peter 4.19. But for now, just, just note the fact that if necessary, these trials are out of necessity. What is the necessity for these trials. What is it that that God is doing through these trials? He is testing the genuineness of our faith. Now, for us here, we want to think of grace as pleasant, right? We want to think of grace as these, these flowery things. But in reality, as one of my favorite commentators says, grace is uncomfortable. It's not always easy. It's it's not always fun. But it does have a purpose that is greater than what we could have imagined. The purpose of tested genuineness of faith. That's the result of this. That the tested genuineness of our faith may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. While these circumstances that they were in may have made them feel like they were scorned, like they were the scum of the earth, and like they should be ashamed of who they are, notice what this produces in them. This tested genuineness of the faith produces something different in them. It produces praise and glory and honor. If this doesn't set your heart on fire, then you may not be a believer. I say that very seriously because, uh, I hesitate to use this illustration, but last night I was, I was watching a commentary, uh, I, I say a commentary, it was, um, it was Saturday Night Live, and uh, as I watched Saturday Night Live, it was interesting to me that he was giving a commentary on how our culture views God. He, he, was, he was talking about Christians and what they believe, and he made the joke That when Christians get to heaven, he thinks it's going to be an empty room with just God. And he laughed. And I have the question for you this morning. If you got to heaven and all that was there was Jesus and his glory, would you be satisfied? If there were no streets of gold, if there were no pearly gates... If there were no other saints but just you and Jesus, would that satisfy your heart? Because only if that is your treasure is Christ in your heart. This is what he's getting at. This is what he's pressing towards. The test of genuineness of your faith produces these things when Jesus is revealed to you. When Jesus comes back, when you get to see your treasure, you will find praise and glory and honor. Are you thrilled by Jesus? Because if you are, this this tested genuineness in your faith produces something much more valuable than even gold. He uses this illustration here. I don't have to create one. He uses it right here for us. He said, the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold, though it perishes. Though it perishes. It's more precious than that, though it is tested by fire. Now, how many of you, when, um, to steal uh, from Paul David Tripp, how many of you, on your next anniversary, you plan on buying your wife a piece of ore? You think she'd be thrilled by that, just a piece of ore? And all you ladies are looking at me like, but you better not give him any ideas. <laughs> but when we find gold, it's in a state of what we call ore. It's dirty. It's, it's, it's unpurified. But they take this ore and heat it up. And they, and they run it through the fire until it is just purified. And that's why you have these different purities of gold. How much ore is still left in it? And as it's tested by fire, it becomes purer and more valuable and greater. And Peter here says, Your tested faith is more valuable than gold, even though it has to be tested the same way. Some of you are being tested. You're being tempted to doubt the goodness of God. You're tempted to to doubt the promises of God. And he says, when your faith is tested and it endures, it's more valuable than gold because it's eternal. Circumstances are not an excuse for for forsaking faithfulness. Circumstances are not an excuse for forsaking faithfulness. No matter what's going on through your life, it doesn't excuse your sin. We do it all the time, right? I know I'm supposed to do this, but. But I'm really struggling. I know I'm supposed to give to God, but our finances are tight. I I, I know that I'm supposed to give up my time, but we're so busy. I I know that, that I'm supposed to worship God, but life is so rough. Circumstances are not an excuse for forsaking our faithfulness. Rather, faithfulness refined by fire and temptation are a greater value. Are you forsaking what you know to be pleasing to God because your circumstances are difficult? The practice of future grace produces greater worship because we have a greater value and tested faith. We see he moves on in verses 8 through 9 to give us another context for this worship. In verses 8 through 9, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice what he's saying here. He says, this worship that's produced in you This rejoicing, remember what I said about rejoicing, it's this overflow of joy. This rejoicing is with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Maybe some of you remember that old hymn, The Love of God. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would, be, would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We can't even begin to express in human words all that God has given us in Christ Jesus. We can't even begin to express our worship. It is inexpressible. Our words are are mere attempts out of joy at expressing our our gratefulness for what we've been given in Christ. It's inexpressible and filled with glory. Our our rejoicing is so otherworldly that it's, it's, it's filled with glory as though it were from heaven itself. Though we are in the world, we are not of the world, our home is somewhere else. We, 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 have, we have this taste of heaven as we anticipate the end. Worship is beyond our words. And what context does this happen in? This happens in the context of not seeing Jesus. He says, now the goal is seeing Jesus, right? That's what we want to do. But he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. That's the context for this joy. As we patiently await Jesus, as we patiently sit here, and though other people can't see him, though other people don't understand him, though other people cannot fathom why we would believe in a God that we cannot see, we love him. We love Jesus. That's the context for our faith. John 20, 29 says, Have you believed because you have seen me? He's speaking to Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas, right? He wants to to touch Jesus because he's not sure it's real. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Blessed are you who have not seen Christ and yet have believed because you have obtained the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is the result of this? The result of this is our faith, our salvation. This is the product of our faith. This rejoicing. If we are not rejoicing, as I said earlier, if we are not worshiping God as we ought, then we ought to test our faith and see if it be genuine. And what is the result of this? The salvation of our souls. This is not some kind of Uh, We 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 make souls impersonal today, and we think it's some kind of other thing. In this passage, souls has that idea of the Hebrew, in which it's everything that we contain. It's all of who we are. In the Old Testament, it's this idea of heart, this this heart of everything that we are, where we think, where we talk, where we everything that we give out of and we practice out of the salvation of who we are. Is obtained through the outcome of our faith. And this is the work of God. The greater the gift, the greater the exaltation. Imagine with me today that I were to go out and give you $100. How many of you would be excited by that? Okay, at least a few of you are still awake. Okay. What if I came and gave you $1,000? What about $10,000? If I gave you a million dollars, You give it back. If I gave you a million dollars, the joy would be exponentially better than the hundred dollars, right? Why? Because it's so much greater. It's so much more unimaginable. The greater the gift, the greater the worship. Here we have not received a temporal, cheap gift, but we have received an eternal gift that has no end, that has no diminishing value, that doesn't fade. Our sins were not just forgiven, but we were given the salvation of our souls. This must affect the extent of our praise. Why is it that we say God saved us from our sin, gave us righteousness in Christ, and dwells us with the Spirit, leads us into eternity where He has kept an inheritance which cannot be destroyed, doesn't fade, and never goes away? And we look at that and say, "When's lunch. How is it that we can look into what the gift that God has given us and be like, eh? Peter calls them to action in worshiping God in the midst of their circumstances because it's better. Worship is the product of salvation. Therefore, it begs, to, it begs us to differ with the, the, the lack of worship or begs us to consider that the lack of worship means a lack of salvation. I don't mean for you to examine how well you sing or play an instrument. I'm in trouble if that's how it's measured. I mean for you to examine the condition of your heart. Do you have a heart that worships God beyond words or actions, but rejoices, a rejoicing that begins at the core of who we are and overflows into every aspect of our life? Whatever context you find yourself in today, whether it be trials or just questioning, you can still have faith in the context of this great salvation that he's given us. It's more secure. You might be saying, I do have faith in this salvation. Then I have three questions for you to evaluate the genuineness of your faith. Is your worship shallow? How deep is your worship? Is your worship vague? Or is your worship greater where your doctrine is deeper? Are you seeking to dig deeper and deeper into the things of God that you might worship him more fully and fully? Worship him even greater than you did yesterday, even greater than you did the day before, and even greater tomorrow than you did today. Are you seeking to worship God greater and more fully? Or is your worship vague and shallow? Is your worship distracted? Does your worship of God decrease during the trials of life? Is your worship distracted by busyness, difficulties, or the riches of this world? Third, is your worship dry? Does your worship of God feel like a taste of heaven, or does it feel as a mere duty? Something I have to do. I'll end with this illustration. My wife and I, when we were engaged, we went on a mission trip to Argentina, the longest flight of my life. It's, it felt like it took forever to get there, and the first thing that they did when we got there is they took us to a McDonald's. I'm like, I can't have McDonald's anywhere. I don't want this nasty burger sitting here. And, and, and so, you know, we eat the burger, but then, then in the glorious moment when we get to the hotel, they have a dinner prepared for us by an Argentine chef, and it is Argentine beef brisket. And if you've never had Argentine beef, it is the best stuff you're ever going to taste. And it is so glorious that my wife begins to cry, like, we've not had good food in so long. Now, what's the difference between the hamburger and the beef brisket? What, what, One is just mere duty because I have to eat something. I'm hungry. The other one is because this tastes so good. Is your worship of God mere duty, or is it because it's so wonderful to be with God's people? It's so wonderful to be doing the things of God where you're at. It's so wonderful that that it's a taste of heaven to be doing the things of God. That's the kind of worship this passage calls us to this morning. Bow with me in prayer.